I'm told that during World War II, when England needed to increase its production of coal, that Winston Churchill made one of his uh, famous inspiring speeches to the uh, labor leaders of that day, calling upon their uh, calling upon them for support. He asked them to picture a parade at war's end with all the people that had contributed to the war effort gathered. First, he said, would come the sailors that had kept England's sea lanes free. Then would come her pilots, her Royal Air Force pilots, who had driven the Luftwaffe from the skies. Then would come her proud soldiers from Dunkirk that had then gone to North Africa and driven Rommel into the, into the sea. Last of all, he said, would come a long gray line of sweat-stained, soot-streaked men in miners' caps. And someone in the crowd would cry out, Who are you? Where were you during the critical days of our struggle? And from 10,000 throats, Churchill said, would come the answer, We were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. I uh, love that story because it reminds me that so much of the Christian life is simply that, working down in the mines, out of sight, out of mind, chipping away at the hard thing that is in front of us. We might wish for something more exciting, uh, soaring over adversity, uh, driving out the forces of evil, but when it comes down to real, authentic, Christian living, most of it is very mundane, very daily, uh, working away at whatever hard thing God has given us to do. It's simply a matter of working in our business of following Jesus, which was certainly true of those to whom the letter to the Hebrews was written. Let me remind you again of their circumstances. Uh, I read this last week that uh, the letter to the Hebrews is called the letter to the Hebrews because it was a letter written to Hebrews. I thought that was a very profound insight. You might want to write that down. Uh, these were Jewish Christians who had been evangelized through someone who had been evangelized by the apostles. They had first become believers, and uh, as is so often the case, there was a first uh, flush of joy and excitement. And then things got down to the business of just living day after day, working at the hard things that were in front of them, uh, facing into difficult marriages, parenting difficult children, living with difficult people, chipping away at the what seemed to be an impenetrable wall in front of them. And uh, the Lord had not come back as he had promised, and they were tired of waiting, and they were tired of the struggle, and they began to envision what life was like before they became Christians, before they were harassed by people and principalities and powers, and they were thinking about going back. The writer of the Hebrews writes to convince them that you cannot go back. There's nothing back there. The old religion is defunct. All of the creeds that you believed were simply shadows uh, depicting the reality in which you now now live. You can't can't go back. You have to you have to go on. Um, I uh, recall when I was a child, we used to uh, put playing cards on our bicycles to make them sound like motorcycles. And uh, 
finally I grew up and bought a motorcycle. And uh, I learned that motorcycling isn't all it's cracked up to be either. However, I never wanted to go back to my old bicycle. I wanted to go on. Now, this is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. We have to go on. You cannot go back. Now, remember what he's doing. He's comparing and contrasting Jesus with, uh, with everything else that they had before. Jesus is better. He's better than angels. Angels were very important in Jewish thought, Jewish theology, because they were the agents through whom the law was given at Mount Sinai. But Jesus is better because he is God's last word to us. Now, uh, the writer picks up another theme. He wants to establish that Jesus is better than Moses. Because in Jewish thinking, Moses was the premier prophet. There was no one like Moses. Moses was the one who led them out of Egypt. Moses was the one who led them, who parted the, the Red Sea and led them through the Red Sea. Moses is the one uh, who received the law on Mount Sinai. That was, uh, Sinai. That was the Constitution that bound them together, much as our Constitution binds us together. They could look back to Moses as the architect of the nation, the premier prophet, the one who wrote the books that they had, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books from which everything else in Scripture springs. He was the prophet par excellence. There's no one like, like Moses. But the writer wants to establish that Jesus is even better than Moses. If you go back to Moses, you're going back to a lesser figure. Now let's begin reading with chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. I can't say anything else this morning. I'd like to say that to you. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. The apostle, the one sent by God. The high priest, the one who intercedes for us. The apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Or as we could translate that phrase, he who builds everything is nothing more or less than God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage in the hope of which we boast. Now he addresses himself to holy brothers. You'll notice that the passage begins with the preposition therefore, which takes us back into the chapter before, where he has established the preeminence of Jesus. So chapter 3 and what follows is really a, a logical conclusion to what has gone before. Now he appeals to them as holy brothers to fix your thoughts on Jesus. By holy brothers, he means uh, members of God's family, the children of God. That's what they were. This book was addressed to a church. As I said in the introductory message, this, was, this, this message was probably first delivered as a spoken message and then later written. So it was addressed to a church, to a body of uh, Jewish uh, believers whom he describes as holy brethren. Holy in the sense that they were set apart, they were special, they were unique. 
brothers because they were members of God's family. But, as he will go on to say in the book, there were pretenders among them. There were people in this congregation who were only nominally Christian, not not vitally so. Furthermore, he says uh, they share in the heavenly calling. Back in chapter 2, verse 10, Chris uh, reminded us last week that God is in the business of bringing many sons to glory. That's what it means to share in the heavenly calling. God is beckoning us. He's calling us home. That's where our home is. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We don't just believe in pie in the sky by and by. We believe that our hope will have some significance for the way we live today. But we do have hope. This isn't all there is. There's more to come. I just spent uh, a weekend in the San Francisco Bay Area, went down to speak at a conference in Mount Hermon, and then Monday and Tuesday, Carolyn and I and a friend of hers spent uh, some time running around uh, uh, in the Bay Area, and we went up to San Francisco to see uh, some of the damage from the earthquake, and by some quirk of fate, we ended up in Nordstrom's. I still haven't quite <laughs> figured that out. You, I don't know if you've ever seen Nordstrom's in the city, but it is uh, incredible. Four floors of every conceivable garment and accoutrement that you accoutrement that you could uh, wear. Uh, Carolyn and her friend were doing some shopping, and I was wandering around looking at at you know all the, the suspenders and the striped shirts and the wide ties and all the rest. Of, you know, and I started looking at myself, and I had this pair of baggy. Uh, Thompson wash and wear wool pants and an old tacky tweed coat and I started feeling real conspicuous and and looking around at all the beautiful people and they were dressed to the to the gunnels and two hundred dollar loafers and whatnot and just feeling real shabby and as we were walking out I said to Carolyn boy I sure am glad that my destiny is not determined by the way I look today there's got to be something more and uh, this is what our author tells us there is indeed something more. God is beckoning us home. We're on our way to heaven. This world is not our home. We're just uh, passing through. Incidentally, this word uh, partners, or those who share in the heavenly calling, is actually the word that's used in the Gospel of Luke for the partnership that James and John had in a fishing boat, which was interesting to me. It simply says that we're all partners together. We all share together in this homeward heavenly call. Now, uh, you know what... What the writer is doing here, he's comparing and contrasting uh, our Lord and Moses. He's using a form of literature that was well known in those days. The Jews called it light and heavy, that you take uh, a light object and you would compare it with a, a more weighty, more glorious object, and that's what he's doing. He's comparing Moses, who had weight, with Jesus, who, is, uh, who, is, who has far more glory and honor. He tells us, first of all, that Moses was faithful in all God's house. God's house, of course, is not a building. God's house is people. This is the house that God himself established. It's the household of faith. It's composed of everyone in all of human history who has believed in God, who's taken God at his word, who's taken him seriously. Hebrews 11 tells us it begins in the beginning uh, with Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah 
and uh, Jacob and Isaac and Joseph and Moses, they all were in the household of faith. These were the people who were faithful to God throughout their years. It includes us. We're in this group. And uh, the writer says, of all the people in the household of faith, Moses is the greatest. He's the most faithful man in the household. Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing to say about someone. Moses was the prophet par excellence, we know. But more than that, the writer wants us to understand this man did what he was told. He went through life believing God and was faithful to him. Now, let me show you the place uh, from which that quote comes. Uh, turn back to the book of Numbers, chapter 12. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. There's a remarkable passage. It gives you some idea of the strength of the writer's argument. Unless we're Jews, we may not appreciate how powerful this argument is because, again, I just want to reinforce this. In Jewish minds, there was no one, no one like Moses. Uh, chapter 12, Numbers 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses. Uh, the, it's interesting, the verb talk against is both singular and feminine, which would suggest that Miriam who was Moses' older sister, you know, the one who uh, took care of him when he was in the, the little uh, ark made out of reeds, uh, his sister turned against him, and she began to gossip about him. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he'd married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now you understand what they're doing. They're trying to discredit his leadership. And Moses is getting too big for his britches. Who does he think he is? God speaks through us. We are God's spokes. Both Miriam and Aaron were prophets. Uh, God speaks through us. So who does he think he is? That, he's, that he is God's spokesman. After all, he ought to be disqualified from leadership because he married a Cushite. Now the issue here is more than racism. The issue here is that he'd married outside the covenant. He'd married a non-Israelite woman. And we know from her history that she was never aligned with Moses. When he tried to circum when he did circumcise his boy, she deeply resented that, called him a bloody husband, uh, was very angry with him because of the action that he took. She never understood the significance of circumcision as a sign of being a part of the covenant. Never was aligned with him. At some part in, uh, point in his life, she evidently left him for a while. He must have struggled and struggled and struggled in his marriage. And uh, Miriam picked up on this and she said, well, what right do you have to be God's spokesman to this nation when you have this terrible marriage? Now, this is the kind of thing that often happens to those in leadership. All leaders are flawed. They either fail before they, they were called or they will fail afterwards. They will sin. They will make mistakes. And we often will discredit them because they are flawed people. Uh, flaws never disqualified anyone from leadership happily. Uh, unconfessed sin, mistakes that we're not willing to face into, are very serious. But sin and error and, and mistakes do not disqualify any of us. Who of us would be in leadership if they did? What qualifies us, what qualified Moses, was the fact that he'd been called and commissioned by God 
And when they, when Miriam began to gossip about about Moses and speak against him behind his back, God heard it. I don't know if Moses did or not, but it doesn't matter. God heard it and uh, called uh, Miriam and Aaron on the carpet. Uh, verse three is interesting to me. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. You know Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. But I cannot believe that Moses wrote that about himself. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that uh, the minute you think you're humble, you're not. And uh, certainly would apply here. If he was the meekest man on the face of the earth, he would never say that about himself. This is an insertion by an inspired prophet uh, at some later point about Moses. There are a number of these uh, short uh, editorial comments in the first five books of the Bible, which are there because prophets inspired by the Holy Spirit placed them there. And I think this was some other observer, someone other than Moses, who saw the quiet demeanor of this man, his gracious, defenseless, uh, uh, meek response to, uh, to this attack. Every time Moses was assaulted, he just fell flat on his face before God. He didn't try to defend himself. And he doesn't on this occasion. Uh, God does that job very well. Someone has said there is tremendous majesty in, in meekness being guarded by God. God uh, took on his defense. Verse 4. And once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, listen, listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. These were the accepted channels. Prophets in those days received revelation through dreams and visions. But this is not true of my my servant Moses. And then here is the quote, which the writer of Hebrews picks up. He is faithful in all my house. In other words, there is no one like Moses. Out of all the household of faith, I have chosen this man to deal with in a special way. With him, I speak face to face. Not uh, not in riddles, not enigmatically, not in perplexing ways, but uh, plainly. He sees the form of the Lord. And you understand what he's saying? Moses had an unparalleled position in Israel. No other prophet had what Moses had. God spoke to him face to face. God appeared in some likeness to him and gave him truth. And then Moses turned around and delivered that truth to the, uh, to the nation of Israel. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the seed plot from which all the rest of Revelation springs. Moses was the premier prophet. The prophet par excellence. As a friend of mine says, the one of whom uh, there is no humor. Uh, he was the greatest of them all. And uh, so he says, how, how come you're not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Good question. Good question. often thought of that when I was in classes where the Pentateuch was being attacked by unbelievers. How dare any of us speak against God's servant Moses, most faithful man that that ever lived. He was faithful to the task of revelation. He was faithful in his priestly ministry. Incidentally, the Old Testament describes him as an apostle as well. Jesus is an apostle, one sent from God in Exodus 3. Uh, God, uh, we're told, said to Moses, I am sending you 
to Pharaoh in the Greek translations of that phrase use the word from which our word English, our, from which our English word apostle comes from apostello, one who is sent out. So that the Jews in this day thought of Moses as an apostle. And that's why, that's why the writer refers to Jesus also as an apostle, one sent, like Moses, he was sent. Uh, Jesus is a priest. He's our high priest. Moses was also a priest. Psalm 99 says so. He interceded for Israel. His brother was the high priest, but Moses carried on a priestly function. When uh, he came down from the mountain and the nation had gathered around the gold calf, Moses prayed that God would not destroy the nation. He says, you know, as a matter of fact, take my life, but don't take theirs. He functioned as a, as a priest in that in that case. So he was faithful to the task that God had given to him. He was an apostle and a high priest. However, however, Jesus is greater. You follow his argument? Verse 2. Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. And here the comparison ends and the contrast begins. Because the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. That's obvious. The one who builds the house is greater than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who builds everything is God. Here's one of those incidental references, sort of oblique references of the deity of Christ. I think uh, most Jews in this day were still troubled by the thought that Jesus was also God. So very often the writer uses subtle suggestions, just indications of who Jesus really is. And what he's saying here is, uh, look, here, here's the household of God. And uh, the house is very important. And Moses was in the house, but Jesus is the one who founded the house. He started it all. He who begins everything is God. And so he has, uh, he has greater honor than anyone within the house. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. He was a member of it and was a servant there. And uh, the word that the writer uses is, a unique, is an unusual word. It means someone who renders loving service on behalf of the Father. But Christ, and here is the first reference to Messiah in the book of Hebrews, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus, is faithful as a son over God's house. Moses was a servant, a loving servant within. Jesus is God's beloved son who's over the house. And so he says he is so much better. He is so much greater. He has greater honor than Moses. And that's why we ought to fix our thoughts on him. We have to take him seriously. We go back to the past. We go back to the shadows. When we come to him, we break out into the light. Uh, imagine, if you will, someone who's lived in an orphanage all of his life or her life and uh, he longed for a home, a place, a family where, where, where he belongs. And then someone comes along and adopts this orphan and brings him into a home where he's loved and cared for and, and for the first time has, has security and a hope, has a destiny that's meaningful. And it's not always easy. Sometimes it's hard. There's certain disciplines in the house that make it difficult. 
But uh, no orphan would want to go back and live in an orphanage. He wouldn't trade the hard things for the father's house for what seemed to be the ease of living in, in an orphanage because he's found the real thing. He's found what he or she is looking for, and that's what our author, that's what our writer is, is saying. We can't go back. Now he says in verse 6, We are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. We are his house. If we hold on to courage, the word has to do with fearlessness, boldness, and the hope of which we boast. So there, what's required of those in his house is fearless courage and joyful hope. Uh, fearless courage in the sense that we have the courage to do what Jesus asks us to do, as Jesus did. Later in the book, he will tell us in chapter 12 that, that though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It's true of us. When the tough times come along, we have to face into that hard rock, and we just have to chip away at the, at the difficult things in our life, our marriages, our children, our jobs, our health, the things that, that really bother us. We look on to the, to the joy that's coming. For the joy that was set before him, we're told. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, the, the, the if clause might trouble you. We are his house. That is, we are members of the household of faith. We are authentically Christian. We are real believers. If we hold on to our courage and hope of which we boast, the picture that comes to mind is someone hanging over a precipice, uh, gripping a rope, and... Uh, the person tries very hard to hang on, but after a while, he gets very tired, and he lets go and falls to his destruction. That's what it sounds like he's saying here. We're safe as long as we hold on, as long as we endure. But uh, to use the rope analogy, I would have to say that uh, what, what Scripture teaches us is that God's children, uh, the, the brotherhood, the holy brotherhood, those that are in the family of faith, have a good grip. They will endure to the ends. I said before, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints says that those who are truly regenerated, those whose hearts have been changed, those who have experienced the new birth in Christ, the truly regenerated, will endure to the end. You will hang on. You will hang in there. You will face into those tough things that you have to face day after day after day. And... Though you are very human and you will fail at times, the intent of your heart will be to do what Jesus wants you to do. That's what authentic Christianity is. It's getting up every day and focusing on Jesus and saying to him, what do you want me to do today? It may not be anything glorious. It may not be anything that will win you the Distinguished uh, Citizens Award in the Statesman. Uh, James says that true religion, authentic Christianity, is taking care of widows and orphans. It may be some unseen, quiet labor no one ever recognizes. It may be working away at some compulsion or habit that has frustrated you for years. 
It may be facing into a very difficult marriage, perhaps an alcoholic spouse. It may mean dealing with a dyslexic uh, child. It may be living in a dysfunctional family. It may be living with the fact that you grew up in a dysfunctional family. It may be the memories of being assaulted and molested as a child. I don't know what your particular struggle is, but I know what it means to be authentically Christian. It just means to get up every day and take a good hard look at Jesus and do again what you did the day before, perhaps, or the week before, or the month before. Just do again what Jesus is asking you to do. Oh, you'll fall, you'll fail. But as someone has said, we just keep falling forward because we know that our destiny is fixed. It's certain that on ahead is joy. And that's what keeps us going. It's the certainty of that uh, salvation that gives us the energy to keep, uh, keep going tenaciously, persistently. That's the way the turtles got to the ark. Um, I stumbled. I don't believe, I don't think anything happens by chance anymore. But I, I stumbled on uh, to a psalm, Psalm 17, this last week, and I was reading and reflecting on it. And I came to the last, uh, next to the last verse, I think it is, verse 19, something like that. David is, actually, he's sort of struggling with his own feelings of doubt and guilt and fear and, and, and trying to assure himself that he's doing all right. And uh, though he's not blameless or sinless, he's blameless in God's eyes. You look in my heart and you can see the, the intent of my heart and the openness of it and my desire to keep working away at this hard thing in, in front of me. And uh, as sort of the bottom line, he says, when I wake up, uh, I see you. And I'm pleased with you. I shall be satisfied when I awake, he says, with your likeness. Takes that hard look at the Savior. And that satisfies him and gives him the energy to go on doing whatever it is he has to do. And quite by accident, this week, I stumbled across a poem by Annie Jensen Johnson Flint based on this psalm. And I want to read it to you. I shall be satisfied when I awake, not only on some future day of days, when I shall hear him call me and arise to leave the earth in all its changeful ways. But now, here, this morning, when my sleep drops from me like a garment of the night, when with the darkness all its fears depart, and I awake to find that it's light, to feel the sting of memory's reproach, the consciousness of yesterday's defeats. You see, that's what we start thinking about, yesterday's defeats. And we start reproaching ourselves for the failures of the past. To feel the sting of memory's reproach, the consciousness of yesterday's defeats. How much was purposed and how little done in all its small advances and retreats. I sometimes feel like I climb up one foot and slide back two. That's my Insertion, not hers. To know a new day waits me with its tasks, its vain desires, its oft-repeated failure to achieve the heights of faith to which my soul aspires. Its humbling knowledge of my life's deep need, its weary ways o'er which my feet must plod. 
Yet I'm satisfied when I awake because I see his face, my Savior God. And that's what it means to be an authentic Christian. As I said in my column Saturday, you know, some people shimmer and shine and float six inches off the ground and and they look good until they run into pain and adversity and that's when they fall apart because they're sensual Christians. They live by their feelings and not by the Word of God. But by God's grace, we can wake up every morning and forget the past, the failures, the frustrated efforts to try to deal with sin and and the, the habits that oppress us, and we can start afresh, and we just look into His face, and we see His forgiveness, and we see His heart and His grace that's available to us, and we say, what, what do you want me to do today? What's the next step? And maybe it's nothing more than getting up and showing love and kindness to someone in your life who's making it very difficult for you. No one will ever see it except God. He sees it. And He'll give you the grace to endure. That's the sign that you belong to Him. And on ahead lies glory. Let's pray. Give us, Lord, that tenacity that characterized our Lord, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross. Help us also to despise the shame To not be preoccupied with the struggles of this life and the hard things that we have to face and not worried by the fact that no one seems to care, that we're overworked and underappreciated and overstressed and underpaid and and all the other problems that, that we have to face day after day that we share in common with all the other brothers who who have with us, who've heard with us this heavenly call. Help us to keep our eyes on the Savior. Help us to know that He is indeed the one who has saved us. And that we walk with the assurance that He is at work in us, both to will and to do of His good purpose. Help us, Lord, to just just do what we're asked to do without complaint, but with that sense of satisfaction and joy that comes from knowing that one of these days we're going to stand in your presence, you're going to throw your arms around us, and you're going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.